Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, I hope your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 18. If not, turn your Bible to Matthew 18. We're going to go through this whole chapter this morning. I'm not going to read the whole chapter here in the beginning, because I will read through the whole thing in chunks during the sermon. So let me just take this time to read verses 1 through 5. As you listen to the Word of God, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. Hear then the words of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. Father, we thank you that you are so clear with what you call us to and what you expect of us. We praise you that you call us to become like children, that we don't come to you on our own merit, on our own giftedness or reward or goodness. For you said there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good. We thank you that we can come to you like children. And that's what we're doing this morning, Father. We come to you like children, asking that you would guide us, asking that you would comfort us, asking us, asking you that you would convict us, and change us and give us insight into your word. As you've been instructing me, Father, from Isaiah 40 this week, you've said, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never faints or grows weary. There is no limit to your understanding. You give strength to the weary and strengthen the powerless. And Father, we are powerless. I'm powerless to preach. We're powerless to hear and be changed. We have many trials in our life that cause us to be weary. But you are the one who gives strength. So strengthen us now by your grace, even as you strengthen our brothers and sisters and our loved ones in the midst of their trials. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're finishing up our series on Christ embodied the doctrine and practice of the local church. And so we've been looking at a lot of different things. What is a church? What is membership and why should you join a church? What is church discipline? Who are the leaders of the church and what are their qualifications and responsibilities? We, um, we spoke of, and then last Sunday night we had a kind of a summary message of the whole thing with Pastor Jeremy Young here. And so tonight, or today, this morning, I want to focus one last time on this idea of the church but I wanted to do it through expositing Matthew 18 and what it means to be a community of grace. You know, solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments you can give to a human. Why? Because humans are made for relationships. They're made to know each other. It is not good for man to be alone, it says. Everyone longs for relationships, meaningful relationships with other people, and everyone has an ideal community of which they'd like to be a part. Being made in the image of God means you're made for relationships. You can't avoid it. And so we, need, we all want a community to be a part of where we can have meaningful relationships. And no church is perfect, and every church member has felt the imperfections of his or her church. 
We felt the, we could feel the imperfections of our church's fellowship, our community, our shared life. Why? Because some people are proud. Others aren't welcoming. Others look down on another. Sin is ignored or denied. Some people are too passive in a community. Some people are too aggressive. Some are passive-aggressive. Some are too intimidating. Others are too easily intimidated. The church can become a weekly activity where you show up on a Sunday, but you don't share life in any way that is deep, and love is not exercised perhaps regularly. Churches can become a community of performance or routine or a community of expectations rather than a community of grace and a community of love. Love for Jesus and love for one another. And when I read that list, we're all guilty of that, right? I mean, this is not looking around at other people. This is us. There's a difference between communities of grace and communities of performance. And this distinction is very important. Um, there's a difference between relationships of grace and relationships of performance. But before we look at that and, and kind of critique ourselves and our church, it's very important to note that we need to be primarily grateful and not critical. Right? In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. Even your trials. Even in your complaints, give thanks. Be a thankful complainer. Right? In everything, give thanks. That's what the text says. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. We need to be a thankful people. And yet, at the same time, it's, it's good to take temperature of the church every once in a while. We'd want to be regular thermometers always taking the temperature of the church, lest we become com, com, lest we be dominated by discontentment. And yet, we still need to do it from time to time, or else we can become naive, right? And assume everything's good when things aren't good. And so we need to look at both. So, here's the differences between a community of grace and a community of performance. Or let me say this way, a community of performance and a community of grace. And just so you know, your relationships are all characterized by either you relate to each other by performance, or you relate to each other by grace. Let me give you the differences, okay? Here are the differences. In a community of performance, the leaders appear to have everything together and not struggle. In a community of grace, leaders are vulnerable. In a community of performance, the community appears respectable. In a community of grace, the community is messy because life is messy. In a community of performance, meetings are a polished performance. Sundays are a show. Don't, you know, the transition has to be smooth. Why is the transition not smooth enough, PJ, from you to, to Ken? It's a performance. In a community of grace, meetings are just one part of family life. Right? Just like your, your family life at home. You don't have it as a performance, it's just family life. It's community life. In a community of performance, your identity and significance is found in your ministry. What do I do? What am I in charge of? What is your ministry? That's where you find your significance. In a community of grace, your identity is found in Christ. I'm a child of the King. I'm saved by grace. In a community of performance, by the way, this is all Tim Chester's list, not my own. He says, a community of performance, your failure is devastating. When you fail, you just want to hide in a corner and never show your face again. In a community of grace, Failure is disappointing, but it's not devastating. It's not the end of the world. 
In the community of performance, actions are driven by duty. You must do what you must do because it's your duty. In the community of grace, actions are driven by joy. In a community of performance, conflict is suppressed or ignored. In a community of grace, conflict is addressed in the open. In a community of performance, the focus is on orthodoxy, right teaching, and right behavior, allowing people to look good. In a community of, perform- in a community of grace, the focus is on the affections of the heart. Are you loving God? Is there a strong view of sin and repentance and grace? These, are, these communities are, two, are worlds apart, right? And we, we kind of jump back and forth, even in the way we relate to one another. So in performance, here Tim Chester says, in performance-oriented churches, people pretend to be okay because their standing within the church depends on it. A sordid person is seen as the standard or the norm, and anyone who is struggling is seen as substandard or sub-Christian. In this kind of environment, to acknowledge that you're struggling with sin is difficult and distressing. Don't tell anyone you're struggling with sin. Then he says, but this is the opposite of grace. Grace acknowledges that we're all sinners. We're all messed up people, all struggling, all doubting at a functional level. But grace also affirms that in Christ we all belong. All of us make the grade. All are welcome and all are Christians. There are no lesser Christians. Tim Chester continues, imagine this church for a moment. Here's Andrew. He sometimes uses porn because he struggles to find his refuge in God. Here's Pauline. She sometimes has panic attacks because she struggles to believe in the care of her Heavenly Father. Then there's Abdul. He sometimes loses his temper because he struggles to believe that God is in control. Then there's Georgina. She sometimes has bouts of depression because she struggles to believe God's grace. When they come together, they accept one another and celebrate God's grace toward each other. They rejoice that they are all children of God through the work of Christ. And they remind one another of the truths each of them need to keep going and to change. It's a community of grace, a community of hope, a community of change. See that picture? Isn't that great? For the church to be a community of grace, grace needs to be exercised. So here's my main point. There it is in your notes. A community of grace exercises grace. Very simple, right? A community of grace exercises grace. Relationships of grace exercise grace. And when you don't exercise muscles, what do they do? They atrophy, right? They weaken and they atrophy. If you don't exercise grace in your relationships, and if we don't exercise grace in the church, we will drift towards a community of performance. You don't have to try to be a community of performance. That's what we're, we're all spring-loaded, and that's our default. Okay? And so, to be a community of grace, you need to exercise grace. And in this text, we have five exercises of grace that will stop our drift, our drift towards a community of performance. One more thing before we get into these five. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. So here's what I want to say. Even though we speak of ideals here, don't love the idea more than the people. We know who our members are, right? We know who the community, we know who the family is here. We know who the body of Christ is here. Love them. Don't love your idea of what the church should be. Love the people who are actually here. Or you will destroy the community. Okay? We don't have an ideal to realize. We have a gift from God to participate in. 
So let's be thankful for every member of our church. Genuinely, from the heart, thankful for every member of this church. And let's keep living and exercising grace in our relationships towards one another, even as God adds more to our church family. Okay, five exercises of grace. Number one, verses one through four. I already read it to you, but look at verse three. Look at verse three. Jesus said, I assure you, unless you are what? Converted and become like? Like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing you need to do in being a community of grace is humble yourself like a child before the Lord. Humble yourself, number one, humble yourself before the Lord like a child. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule. The kingdom is where sin is killed and grace flourishes. Where the rule of Jesus is not just obeyed, but enjoyed. That's the kingdom of God, and it already exists in this world, and we are called to enter into this kingdom by becoming like a child. By humbling ourselves like a child. Because who gets to go into the kingdom of heaven? Only Christians, right? So this is actually the definition of all Christians. You cannot be a Christian unless you have been converted or turned and became and have become like a child. So, all Christians and only Christians, New Covenant and Old Covenant believers, enter the kingdom of heaven. And they have because they all become like children. If they haven't become like children, they aren't Christian. If you haven't become like a child, you're not a Christian. What does it mean to become like a child and convert? Verse 4 gives us the answer. Look at verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, there's the key word, humbles himself like this child. This one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean? It means you humble yourself like a child. Now D.A. Carson explains, the child is held up as an ideal, not of innocence, purity, or faith, but of humility and unconcern for social status. Jesus advocates humility of mind, not childishness. With such humility comes childlike trust. So I would say, he says it's not faith, but then he says childlike trust, which is faith. So what is it to be like a child? It means you humble yourself. You don't care about social status. You're not, care, you're, not, you're not consumed by what other people think. Not that you are careless and you just act like a snob, but you, you're so free as a child because you know your dad loves you that you're not concerned about what the others are saying. You, you're, there's an unconcern for your status and there's a humility where you're willing to trust God no matter what. Becoming like a child means trusting God no matter what. A child, think about it for a second. A child is gullible, right? You can trick a child. They're gullible, but not only are they so gullible, they're also so confident in what they know. Aren't they? Because they trust what you say. And when they trust it, they're confident because mom said it. Or because dad said it, so it has to be true. And just think about it. When you came to Christ, didn't you trust God like a child? Did you understand everything in this book before you became a Christian? You're like, okay, I understand the gospel, but let me read through this whole book and read all the commentaries and understand this book perfectly before I trust in Jesus. Is that what you did? No, because none of us have that even till now, right? None of us are there. And yet we trust in Jesus, don't you? Why? Don't you have questions still? Aren't there some things here that you don't understand? Yet you still trust him. Why? Because you became like a what? Like a child. You just trust him. And you commit it to Him. You turn away from your sins. You turn away from your religious attempts. You turn away from your good 
at your good deeds and your personal ambitions and you followed Christ because you thought he was trustworthy. Why? Who is Jesus? In the book of Matthew, who is Jesus? He's the one who came to save his people from their sins. He's the one who calls you to follow him. Come after me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's the one who's the Messiah. Who are you? Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's the one in the book of Matthew who died for sins. We're going to talk about that this Friday for Good Friday and rose from the dead on Sunday. That's next Sunday, Easter Sunday. He's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he sends his disciples to go out to all ethnic people groups and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey him. So he's the one we trust. He's the one we turn away from our sins for. If you're not a Christian, let me say this. Thank you for coming today. We're glad you're here this morning. Now, you might be thinking, okay, PJ, this is exactly the problem with Christians. Christians are gullible. You just said it. You just said, children just trust. And so Christians have to stick their head in the sand and not be thinking and just trust a 2,000-year-old book. At least the the last quarter of it is is 2,000 years old. You get back to the Old Testament, and it's even older than that. You're telling me that I need to just trust the book or just trust the pastor and give my whole life, even my money, because you're telling me to trust the book that I don't understand. That's why I would never be a Christian, because Christians are not thinkers. They're ignorant. I feel that. That might be your thought, and that might be why you don't want to be a Christian. But let me just address it briefly. Everyone trusts someone. Everyone becomes like a child. They just have different dads, so to speak. Right? And so if you're not a Christian, you don't trust the Bible, maybe you trust one of your college professors. Or maybe the television. Or popular culture. Or science reports. Or textbooks. Or an old mentor. Or maybe you just trust yourself. Or maybe you trust a religious teacher. Or a religious guru. Or a pastor. But please understand, everyone trusts someone. You know the only way to not trust anyone else is to know everything, right? When you know everything, you don't have to trust anyone because you know it all. But if you don't know it all, guess what? You have to become like a child sometime to trust someone or you can't know anything at all. So everyone becomes like a child. The only difference is Christians are trusting the one who made the universe, according to the Bible, who sent his son to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. We are trusting a God who loves us so much that he gives himself for us. And I would just like to invite you, if you're not a Christian, to switch from your trustworthy source to God himself as he revealed himself perfectly in the Bible and in Jesus Christ. And then if you become like a child and convert, you too will enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're a Christian, here's the word for you. Never forget who you are. You are a child. And how did you become a child if you're a Christian? By repentance and faith. How do you grow as a Christian? By what? Repentance and faith. You don't just repent and believe at the point of conversion. You repent and believe as the pattern of the converted. It's not just your point. It's not just how you become a Christian. It's how you live as a Christian. You're always repenting and believing. Okay, so if you're going to be a community of grace, if we're going to be a community of grace, we need to exercise grace. And what that means is we need to personally repent and believe all the time and trust God. If you don't do that, forget a community of grace. We will be a community of performance. That's number one, though. A community of grace exercises grace. 
But how should we relate to other Christians? Okay, I get it. That's the individual Christian. How do we relate to other Christians, PJ? Well, look at verses 5 through 9. Look at verse 5. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name does what? Welcomes me. And so here we have the next thing. If you're going to exercise grace, here's exercise number two. Welcome each other. Welcome one another. Welcome other Christians. If you welcome other Christians, who do you welcome? Christ, Jesus, right? If you reject others and you don't welcome them, who are you not welcoming? Christ. This is why greeting other Christians is vitally important. You know, we laugh at the command in 1 Corinthians 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Ha ha, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's funny, right? Well, that might be weird in some cultures and maybe in our culture, but the prominence and importance of welcoming other Christians should not be weird. You know what should be weird? That if Jesus Christ came in to this building and you'd recognize him as truly Jesus Christ, that you don't greet him. Wouldn't that be weird? You're coming here to worship Christ. You're coming here to encounter Jesus, to explain him and embody him and enjoy him. And here he comes walking in and he sits down and you don't greet him. That would be weird. You're a follower of him and you're not greeting him. Well, when you don't greet other Christians, you don't greet Christ. When you intentionally avoid somebody and you don't welcome them, who are you intentionally avoiding? Christ. That's strange. You won't be a community. That's not grace. That's performance. Meet my performance, then I'll greet you. But if I don't like you, I'm not greeting you. Well, then you're not greeting Christ. Because that's what the text says. He who welcomes these little ones welcomes me. So what should you do instead? Well, if you don't do that, if you don't welcome Jesus, then you're not a Christian. Christians love Jesus, right? I mean, that, how do you become a Christian? Place your faith in who? Jesus. You don't love Jesus. You don't welcome Jesus. You don't trust Jesus. You're not a Christian. And that's why Jesus has harsh words in verse 6 for us, for me, when we do this. But whoever causes, look at verse 6, whoever causes the downfall, if you don't welcome each other, there's a relational problem there. If there's a relational problem there and you're not greeting warmly, then you're going to stumble them because you're sinning against them. And when you sin against them, look at verse 6. Whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, if you, if you stumble them by not greeting them because there's ice in the relationship, it would be better for you if what? If a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. What is Jesus saying? You're better off dead than harboring bitterness towards another Christian. You're better off dead than not welcoming other Christians. Tie a millstone around our neck, throw ourselves in the depths of the sea. Jesus is intentionally evoking strong language and imagery here to get at our hearts. He wants to wake us up. Now this text is not primarily directed at Christians. This is primarily directed at non-Christians, but Christians need to hear it too, right? Look at verse 7, though. This is for non-Christians. It says, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. The world tries to get Christians to sin, right? The world tries to tempt us and distract us and give us different thoughts in our mind of what it means to live life so that we stumble and fall and stop following Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Cursed are you, world. You will stand judgment before me. You know, we talked about pornography just briefly. The, the you know, San Fernando Valley, the porn, porno, pornographic capital of the world, though it's changed with the internet. Those people will have to give an account to God for the Christians who have consumed pornography at their hands. The world will give an account for stumbling Christians. 
And Christians ought not to stumble each other. Look at verse 8 and 9. If your hand, so what should you do, okay? I'm stumbling people. I've offended other Christians. What do I do? Here's what you do. Verse 8. If your hand causes your, if your hand or your foot causes your downfall, what should you do? Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands and feet and be thrown into the hellfire, eternal fire. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hellfire. What should you do if you're stumbling other people? Stop it at any cost, even if it means cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye or cutting off your foot. Because if you don't stop causing the downfall of other believers, you don't stop attacking Jesus. And if you don't trust Jesus, but you reject Jesus, when you die, you will go where? To hell. And it's better to have one hand and go to heaven than to have two hands and go to hell. Don't stumble other Christians. And when you do, make it right. There's a fellow uh, Christian here in Bellflower, not part of our church, that I stumbled this week. I sinned against her and I sinned against God and she told me about it and I had to ask her for forgiveness. Because it's better for me to just put a... If I would have said, well, I don't care, you're not part of my church anyways. And the, on the overall argument, I think I'm actually right, but I sinned against her. So what do I need to do? Either tie a millstone around my neck and go jump in the sea or go to that person and say, I'm sorry, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. Can you please forgive me? And that's what Jesus is saying here. You, you better cut off your hand. Forget what other people think. Just make it right. Okay, that's number two. So if, if we're going to be a community of grace who exercises grace, then we need to humble ourselves like children. We need to welcome other Christians the way we would welcome Jesus. But there's a third exercise. Look at verse 10. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones because I tell you, well, there's the command. What is the command in verse 10? Don't what? Don't look down on other Christians. That's number three. You want to exercise grace? You want to be a community of grace? Don't look down on other Christians. What do I mean look down? Don't despise them. Don't look down on them with disdain. Some of us Christians are disgusted by other Christians. That ought, that, that ought never to be. Some of us, when we think of another Christian, a bad taste starts to foam up in our mouths. That ought never to be. Don't look down on other Christians, is, the, is verse 10. Why? He gives us three reasons, and I'll go through them briefly. This could be a whole sermon. All, all five of these could be a sermon by itself, by the way. It's just one. We're going through the whole chapter here. But three reasons why you should not look down on other Christians. Number one, look at verse 10. Because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Now, that might mean that not like you have one guardian angel, but angels minister to us, Hebrews 1. And so angels are reporting to God what we're doing. So if I'm looking down on you, the angels are reporting to God in heaven what PJ's doing. In other words, God knows when you look down on other Christians, so don't look down on other Christians, because God knows. Number two, a second reason, in verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than the ninety-nine that did not go astray. So here's a sheep that's going what? Astray. Here's a member of our church, or here's a fellow Christian who, guess what? They're not walking with Christ. Where are they going? They're going astray. They're sinning. If you start looking down on the sinning Christians in this church... 
the straying Christians in this church, the struggling Christians in this church, then you're out of step with the shepherd. Because what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and what? Goes after the one. Jesus will leave the 99 and go after the one. And you will look down on that one because they sin. You're less patient than Jesus as if you're the God that they owe their allegiance to. Jesus won't even look down on straying sheep. How much more are we? He'll leave the 99 to go after the one. Don't look down on other Christians. You'll go against the shepherd. One more. One more reason here. Verse 14. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So not just Jesus, the chief shepherd, but now the Father. God's will is that none of them, what? Perish. And so we would look down on them? No. Don't look down on them. Why should we not look down? Three reasons. Because God knows through the angels. Why should we not look down on them? Secondly, because Jesus will leave the 99 to go after that one. So don't look down on that one. Why should we not look down on each other, on one another? Because the Father will not, doesn't want them to perish. So how dare we look down on another Christian? It makes no sense for those who are captivated by grace. Okay, so we have three exercises. We have humble yourself like a child, number one. What's number two? Welcome other Christians. And number three, don't what? Don't look down on other Christians. A community of grace exercises grace. Now, what if you're the one who sinned against, though? Okay, so I get it. I'm not supposed to look down on others. I'm not supposed to be cold towards others. I'm supposed to welcome others. But I have a question, PJ. I have a question, Matthew. What if, what if they're looking down on me? What if they're stumbling me? What if they're being cold towards me? Then what do I do? You leave them alone, right? Wrong, wrong answer. Matthew 18, 15 is the right answer. What does verse 15 say? What about when they're sinning against you and looking down on you and not welcoming you? What do you do? Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, what? Go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So what's the fourth exercise of grace? Confront to restore other Christians. Confront to restore other Christians. If you don't do this, you will break down the community of grace and it will become a community of performance. If sin is not confronted, if people are not called to repentance for specific sins in specific relationships and specific conversations, then this church will, will fall into a community of performance. You can't say you're all about grace and not confront sin. It doesn't work. Grace shows itself in confronting and restoring from sin. But if there is no restoration, there's no grace. What is grace? Grace is not ignoring. God isn't ignoring us in our sin. He's saving us from our sin, right? That's what grace is. So you confront to restore. If your brother sins against you, go tell him. Now, what if they don't listen? We're not going to spend all this time on it. We've been doing this for several weeks. We're like, oh no, another church discipline. No, we're not going to go deep into this, okay? Just, we're, we're glancing over it. But here it is, verse 16. What if they don't listen to the one? Verse 16. If you won't listen, take one or more two with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Now, this doesn't mean they witnessed the conversation. They're just witnessing the current confrontation. Because you might be wrong as the confronter. They might be wrong as the confronted. But you bring two or three in there who are objective, they could speak into it and sort of adjudicate the situation. 
Now, if the two or three are not successful in bringing resolution and restoration, then what do you do in verse 17? If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. So there's step four, step three. You tell the church family. And then the, the, now the confrontation becomes ecclesial. You get all the, the church. And who is the church? The members of the church, right? The church is those who have committed to one another. And so you, you get them all together. We're all taking responsibility for each other's discipleship. We have one here we're responsible for. We need to handle this as a church. And so as a church family, as a local church, you confront the one and you try to restore them. If you listen to the church, praise the Lord. Restoration. Resolution. Reconciliation. Amen. Now, if it doesn't happen, what do you do? Verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be to you like a what? Like a pagan or an unbeliever or a tax collector to you. Verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. That's the church exercising the keys. The local church exercising the keys of the kingdom. If they don't listen, you excommunicate them. Or exclude, if you like the word exclude instead. You, you dismember them. They are no longer part of the membership in that sense. Because they're a member of the body. But now they're no longer a member of the body. And is your goal to just say, haha, you're not a member anymore. Is that the goal? No, what's the goal? Restoration. And like I've told you in the past, in our previous church of six years, we, we excommunicated four people. Three of them were restored. Praise God. Praise God. God tells us to do it. They might not ever repent, but if they do, praise the Lord. And, and we have to obey no matter what, because we need to love them as Christ loved us and confronted us so that we might be forgiven by Him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. That's love. One famous 18, um, preacher from the uh, eight, 19th century said, if you see your neighbor's house burning down and you don't say anything, that's not love. And that's what a Christian is. If I'm stuck in my sin, it's like I'm in a house that's burning. And you say, well, it's not my business to tell PJ his house is burning. Well, you just let me die in my sin. That's not love. That's not grace. That's not grace. That's self-protection. That's self-preservation. Selfishness. So if we're going to be a community of grace, we need to confront and restore other Christians. Okay, so let's go back. What are the four now? If we're going to be a community of grace that exercises grace, we need to humble ourselves like a child. We need to, what? What's number two? To other Christians? Welcome other Christians. Number three? Don't look down on other Christians. Number four? Confront to restore other Christians. And number five? Well... Let's start with a question. PJ, what if my brother or sister keeps sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting? So let's say they steal money from my wallet, and then I forgive them, and they repent. And then they steal money again next week, and the next week. And they keep doing it. They keep stealing money from my wallet, or they keep slandering me, or they keep gossiping about me, or they keep punching me in the face. What should I do? Should I forgive them? Yes. To restore them? Should I confront to restore? Yes. So what if they keep repenting and then they keep doing it? How much, how much should they do before I stop? When is enough? Enough. Peter raises that question in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Peter's thinking the same thing you're thinking. 
He said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That's a lot. Seven times of the same sin? Okay, there, there, there comes a point where they're just going to keep sinning against me. I need to cut this guy off, right? Seven times. Isn't that pretty strong, Lord? And Jesus says in verse 22, I tell you not as many as seven, but what? 70 times seven or 77. Either way, the point isn't the number. He's not saying you count down on your wall. You got the, you got the hash marks on your bedroom, in your bathroom at home, right? You got the hash marks, 75, 76, two more and it's on. I'm cut you off. Personal excommunication here, right? It's not the point or 489, 490, here it goes. You know, now I just can't wait. You know, you're excited. You're almost excited that they sin against you so that you could get to that limit and cut them off. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And he uses a story as we're going to close here. This is our fifth one. So the fifth one is what? Forgive other Christians. That's the fifth exercise. Forgive other Christians more than 490 times. Or um, forgive forgive other Christians without limit. Limitlessly forgive other Christians. Now, he tells a story to get to the point. Look at verse 23. (coughs) Excuse me. For this reason, Jesus says in 23, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Does the master go for it or not? Verse 27. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. But that slave went out and found his fellow slave, who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe me. Verse 29, at this, the fellow slave fell down and began begging him, saying, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Sound familiar? But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. Do you see the hypocrisy in the slave? Now, let me give you the numbers because 10,000 talents means nothing to you and 100 denarii means nothing to you. So let me put this in bellflower money of 2008. Okay, because a denarii is a day's wage and um, a talent is uh, 6,000 denarii, which so let me give you some numbers here. So one talent is one million two hundred thousand dollars, one talent, one million two hundred thousand dollars in 2008 American dollars in Bellflower. The slave was forgiven a large sum of money he owed 600,000 times more than what his fellow slave owed him. So his fellow slave owned, owed him 100 denarii, which would be $21,415. That's not chump change, right? If your friend or brother in Christ asked to borrow money from you and they borrowed $21,000 from you and they promised they would pay it back and it looked like they could pay it back and they didn't and you were in a tight pinch with your family, wouldn't that be concerning to you? I mean, you're not being mean. It's just keep your word. We had a contract. $21,000 is not chump change. It's not $20. 
I let you borrow $21,000. I got car payments. I got a mortgage to pay. I got my wife. You know, I want to take my wife out to the movies. Like, give me my money back. $21,000 is a lot of money. Now, how much did he owe his master? In today's terms, he owed his master, get this, $12,849,000,000. He owed his master $12,849,000,000. That's astronomical. In proportion, if I had to just... So $21,000, $12,000,000,000, almost $13,000,000. That's like $2 to $13,000,000,000. Give me my two bucks. Whereas he just got forgiven $13 million. For him to grab his fellow slave, choke him, and say, pay me what you owe. Give me my $2. Give me my $21,000. Where he was just forgiven $12 billion. That's ludicrous. Right? That man, presumably that he's choking, has a wife and children. And now his dad is in jail because his fellow slave asked him to pay and went through the legal means to sue him. And so now the five-year-old asks, or the three-year-old asks the five-year-old, where's dad? And the mom says, well, his co-worker sued him for $21,000 and now he's in jail until he pays back the money. This is not theoretical. I mean, this is a real people with a real story in, in, the, in the situation. This is ridiculous that he wouldn't forgive. It's obvious to anyone reading this story how out of touch and out of line the slave is. He's ungrateful to his master for the debt he was forgiven. And he's unaware of the similar position his fellow slave is in. And so consequently, he can't see the incongruity and the hypocrisy of his actions. And so as you hear it, you are filled with rage. And so Jesus continues the story in verse 31. What is the master going to do then? Look at verse 31. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that $13 billion because you begged me. By the way, just side note here, when he says, I promise I'll pay back the $13 billion, that's more insulting than reassuring, right? For your, your slave to say, I'll pay you back, I promise. That's an insult. And yet the master still forgave, right? Even as he's being insulted, he's still forgiving. Highlighting his grace. Now let's continue here. Verse 33. Here's the master talking to the slave. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry, handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. How long will he be tortured? I mean, when are you going to pay back $13 billion in Bellflower, right? You could feel the rage and the injustice when you hear the story. The original readers and hearers could feel the rage. What's the point? The point is this, that God has forgiven you an infinite debt for your sins against Him. Through His substitutionary death and resurrection. Through the Son's substitutionary death and resurrection. And if you truly receive the grace of God in your life then that will inevitably transform you into a forgiver of infinitely less debt. God through Christ forgave you. Here's the point. God's forgiveness makes you a forgiver. You get that? God's forgiveness makes you a forgiver. Unless unforgiveness or unforgiveness is an issue whether you're really a Christian or not. We all have this issue of forgiving others because everyone sins against us. We're all sinners. People are going to sin against you. 
And they're going to sin against me. Are you going to be a forgiver or not? Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, compassionate or tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take our $13 billion debt. He took the punishment. He took the debt. He took the torture. He took the jail time so that we would be free. He absorbed the debt. So, if you're not a Christian, you might say this. You might say, you know what, PJ? This is why I don't want to be a Christian because Christianity is all about this bloody cross. You guys keep talking about the blood and the death and substitution. Why is God so angry? Isn't God love? Doesn't love cover a multitude of sins? Why is your God so angry? I could never be a Christian because your God is too angry. Well, let me respond. Well, you say, why can't he just forgive it? Why can't he just forgive sin? Here's the answer Tim Keller gives. On the cross, God does not demand our blood, but offers his own. All forgiveness of any deep wrong and injustice entails suffering on the forgiver's part. Think about that for a second. Here's a, here's a phone. These phones are, what, $500? If you say, PJ, can I borrow your phone? And then you get so angry at whoever you're talking to on the other line that you throw the phone on the floor because you're so upset with the phone call of who you're talking to when you borrowed my phone that you break it. That's $500. Or whatever an iPhone is today. I don't know how much iPhones are today. This is an old one. That's $500, $600 you just broke. Now, I could forgive you or I could have you what? Pay for it. But guess what? If I forgive you, that means you don't have to what? Pay for it. But who has to pay for it now? I do. Forgiveness doesn't bring the phone back. Right? Someone has to absorb the cost. Someone has to absorb the pain. Forgiveness is never easy. Because forgiveness demands hurt on the part of the forgiver. So when you say, why does God have to have a cross? Because on the cross, God is absorbing the pain and absorbing the debt rather than putting it on you. Why do we have an angry God? Because sin hurts. Sin violates the holiness of God. And God cannot take sin lightly because He is holy, holy, holy. He hates your sin. He hates my sin. He hates all the sin in the world. He hates our sinful hearts. The the, the sinful disposition of our hearts. Of course He's angry with it. But he doesn't want to punish you. He already punished his son. If you would just repent from your sins and trust in Christ, then you will be forgiven. Praise God that God doesn't take out the judgment on us. And now he says, that's not the point of this passage. That's just the point of forgiveness. The point of this passage is God's forgiveness makes you a what? A forgiver. And here's the point. You will never, you will never be sinned against as much as you've sinned against God. There's not one member in this room, there's not one Christian in this world who will sin against you as much as you sinned against God. Not even close. They might approach $21,000 of sinning against you. That's big. But they will never reach $13 billion of sinning against you. And you have done that against God. So you have the obligation. You have the responsibility. Indeed, you have the privilege of forgiving other sinners when they sin against you. Because you've been forgiven of infinitely more. It makes no sense to embrace the cross of Christ and bitterness at the same time. That is incompatible in Christianity. 
Forgiveness makes us forgivers. The cross of Christ makes us take up our own cross in forgiving others when they sin against us. Where we decide we're not going to be bitter, we're not going to retaliate, we're not going to get revenge, we're going to entrust ourselves and the situation to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He'll either mete out that vengeance on Christ on the cross, or he'll mete it out in their judgment in hell forever. But God is the judge, not us. We will choose to forgive because we've been forgiven much. So, if we are going to be a community of grace, we must exercise grace. And let's just recap. What are the five exercises of grace? Humble yourself like a child. Welcome other Christians. Don't what? Don't look down on other Christians. Confront in order to restore other Christians. And forgive other Christians without limit. You do these five things and exercise the muscles in this church and in your relationships, we will be a community of grace. If we let these muscles atrophy and we drop the ball on these and say, well, I'm not going to do these, then we will drift into a community of performance. And our relationships will be relationships of performance. And you can have the right membership structure and the right pastor elders and church discipline, but if you don't have the grace in the relationships, then you're losing the heart of what a church is. And so we must exercise these. God is calling us by His grace to be a community of grace, to deal with sin and to forgive each other and to confront each other and to repent together again and again and again. His grace will make us a community of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Matthew 18. We thank You for giving us grace that Christ would die for our sins. When he didn't have to. He could have called 12 legions of angels. But instead he decided to go into the jail and to take the torture. To bear the punishment that we deserve. And for that we thank you. We are eternally grateful. We pray that as more people humble themselves and convert and become like children. That you would add them to our church family. We pray that we as the church family would continue to humble ourselves. And repent and believe. And we pray that you would help us to welcome each other. Not stumble each other. That we would not look down on each other, but care for each other. That we would confront each other in order to restore each other from sin. And that we would forgive again and again, even if we get sinned against 50 times, or 100 times, or 490 times. It will never come close to our sin against you. And so, Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us. May we extend that to one another, so that we might shine and embody Christ to this dying world around us that so desperately needs the love of Jesus and the grace that you offer. Make us a shining light, Father, in this community for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.